Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole, leading functional medicine expert and best-selling author. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up? It's Dr. Will Cole and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine practitioner. I get to consult people around the world via webcam. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. I love what I get to do. I love this sacred art of wellness. And that's what this show is all about, the science and the art of wellness. So if you want to learn more about functional medicine and telehealth, you can check out drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And I've also written a few books about these topics as well, if reading is your thing. Uh, my first book is Ketotarian. It's a mostly plant-based, clean, ketogenic way of eating and the science and the practical application of that. And then my second book is The Inflammation Spectrum. And my newest book is called Intuitive Fasting, which seems paradoxical on the surface, right? How could fasting ever be intuitive? But as I explain in intuitive fasting, that metabolic inflexibility is the death of intuition. It's going to make you feel hangry and drive chronic inflammation and make your blood sugar very erratic and volatile. And you're going to be ravenous with insatiable cravings. It's no fun. But metabolic flexibility, the antithesis of that is fertile ground for authentic intuitive eating and intuitive fasting because you have proper satiety signals, proper gut-brain axis connection, all the physiological stuff that you want, optimal vibrant wellness, basically, where you have a deep discernment of what your body loves and hates. So that's what I talk about in intuitive fasting, using flexible intermittent fasting that works for your body sustainably to feel great, to look great and to be your best. So right now we have a lot of pre-order swag, if you will, for intuitive fasting, uh, for the pre-order. So for everybody that pre-orders the book, you get access to a private online fasting group with yours truly. There's live Q and A's with me. And we also have a shopping guide that's based, it's a download based on the meal plan in the book, as well as you get a sneak peek of one of the chapters of intuitive fasting right now. So you can learn more about intuitive fasting and all the pre-order goodness at drwillcole.com. 
as well. Let's get to today's guest. She is incomparable in her field. Her name is Joanne Lippman. She's one of the nation's most prominent journalists. She served as editor-in-chief at USA Today, USA Today Network, Condé Nast, The Wall Street Journal's Weekend Journal. She's also a CNBC on-air contributor and author of the number one best-selling book, That's What She Said, What Men and Women Need to Know About Working Together. I have learned so much from Joanne over the years, and I am very excited that you get to learn from her today. Today, we talk a lot about just that, as, as her book implies, how men and women can work together to make the world a better place. And we talk about how the impact that the pandemic has had on the workforce, especially on women who have been hit harder than any other group. And we are in what is referred to as a she session. And we talk about that and the statistics around that are mind boggling. And we talk about how, why bringing women back to the workforce is the administration's greatest chance to recharge the economy and why that is imperative and and it should be a must for, for them. We talk about stress and the impact that the pandemic is having on people as far as stress is concerned and how some companies are actually inventing a specific holiday for that, which is really interesting. And all the stuff you need to know about how these things, as far as employment, as far as a healthy work environment, as far as equality in the workplace, how that's so intricately tied to wellness. So you thought the show was just going to be about herbs and supplements and foods and labs, which it is, but wellness is so much broader than that. And I see so many people on an hourly basis when I'm consulting people online that their food is down right, their sleep is down right, their natural medicine protocol is down right. If they're on you know, any medication from their doctor, that's right too. But it's the stress that they're going on during the day at work or a lack of employment that's causing stress. So that workplace stress is actually one of the leading causes of chronic health problems in the world today. So we have to talk about that and we have to talk about gender equality to understand how can we make the workplace less stressful, less toxic for people. So this conversation is so important. It's paramount for us to have, and I'm excited to have it with the best. So let's get to my conversation with Joanne Littman. My friend, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Will. A lot has changed since you and I talked last, right? I mean, the world has been turned upside down. And we talked last year, probably around the same time. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot has changed since then. And you have written very eloquently about what has happened uh, from an economic standpoint. And I, maybe I should preface this with the fact that me being in functional medicine, I talk about health and wellness and getting to the root cause and all that really important stuff that we need as human beings to live a vibrant, well life. But being employed and economics and equality has so intertwined with wellness and you can't separate the two. It's part of human wellness. And you talk about it so, so eloquently. So you can you shed light on what's happening and what's referred to as the she session specifically with women and, and what COVID and its aftermath has done? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Will. So 
this is such an important issue right now, because if you look at what's happened since the onset of COVID, obviously the entire world has been turned upside down. But the stress on women in particular has been extraordinary and severe. We've never seen anything like this. What has happened is when you look at the economic impact, which has been devastating, it had been far more so for women. And the reason is that there are, there are a variety of reasons for this. But first of all, you've got women we now see with children at home, particularly working moms, children at home, being homeschooled, that has fallen extremely heavily on women. And in addition to that, women have tended to be in the kinds of jobs that have been cut the most in the service economy, et cetera. And what we're talking about all women, but this is particularly hard for women of color, you know, black women, uh, Latinas, and we see it in the in the numbers. So at the beginning of this year, and in fact, when you and I were talking last year, Will, we, we were reaching this incredibly great milestone where women, for the first time, because we're half more than half the population, we're actually, for the first time, more than half of the workforce as well. Well, since that time, millions of women have actually dropped out of the workforce. So not only is the employment rate, unemployment rate higher for women, but we have lost millions and millions of women. So just in August and September, for example, more than a million people dropped out of the workforce altogether. 80% of them, 866,000 of them were women. And again, this is primarily working moms. Mm -hmm. That was my follow-up thought was that is this largely due to the fact that kids are home and is that the main reason why it's kids at home and who's going to watch the kids if they're at home? So it's homeschooling, it's childcare for young children and it's single parents. There are something like 11 million single parents uh, in the country. Most of them are women and it is absolutely impossible to be able to juggle, you know, taking care of your child with zero help uh, while also attempting to work full time. We really need it. What this has done is it has really laid bare an essential need we have in this country that we had long before COVID, uh, which is for some sort of institutionalized, guaranteed family leave, sick leave, childcare assistance. Uh, this is something that actually is in the uh, Biden platform, but we'll see how it turns out because we'll, you know, uh, we would have to go through Congress. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, this is something that every developed country in the world has some sort of federally guaranteed uh, family leave, except the United States. Yeah. And you actually mentioned this in a recent article that you wrote uh, in NBC. And I, I said this last time that we talked, but Everything that you write, I mean, you bring to life this colorful, you make something that is very uh, deep stuff, important stuff, and but can be dry stuff. You don't make it dry. You make it very engaging for the reader. So as like a, a journal journalist junkie, like lover of words, I, I really appreciate the way that you write, by the way. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Uh, of course. So let's talk about some of those things that you mentioned that's in the Biden platform that uh, has to get through Congress and we'll see as 2021 rolls out. But some of these measures, number one, you mentioned these this 12 weeks of paid family and sick leave. Um, and if we could talk about that and maybe these other measures that you think would really be helpful for the wellness of people, uh, men and women, when it comes to uh, jobs? 
Absolutely. So this 12 weeks of, of paid family and sick leave is something, again, every other country has something like this, except the United States. This would go a long way toward keeping women, particularly women, in the workforce. We lose a lot of women um, when they have infants and if they don't have childcare, particularly now during COVID, where you can't have, you can't, there's no daycare for, for many people. If there is daycare, uh, it's closing down every time there's a COVID case. Mm-hmm. Uh, this juggle has become pretty much impossible. Biden has also talked about guaranteed, I believe it's pre-K. And what we also need to see is some sort of subsidized child care. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is something we see in other developed countries. We don't have it. But right now, we have too many people who simply cannot afford to both work and mm-hmm. um, you know, ha- pay for child care. Yeah. You cite in the article, you said, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, a third of women ages 25 to 44 say they aren't working because of childcare demands, almost three times more than their male counterparts. Pretty astounding stuff. It is astonishing. And also there was a survey recently that that asked men and women, you know, who takes the who is the, the major person who takes care of homeschooling. And there was a real divide there the vast majority of women uh, are the ones who are taking care of this. There was a little bit of a lack of awareness among their male partners about how Mm -hmm. much the women were doing. So we're still sort of falling back into um, some of these very old stereotypes that are really hard to shake. Yeah. Going back to the 12 weeks of paid family and sick leave, you mentioned the United States is the only developed country that doesn't have something like that. In other countries, I don't know how this is done in other countries, and I'm curious about this. Is is this a, a federally funded thing, a state funded thing, or is this the employer is, I'm just thinking of small businesses and how that's done when it comes to those 12 weeks of paid family leave? Yeah, these are generally federally guaranteed programs uh, that you see in other countries. And uh, that's something that when we have had individual laws, as there is one in, in California, when we've had certain laws for guaranteeing this kind of leave, paid leave, uh, we've seen that it actually helps companies. There hasn't been a financial hit to the companies, and it certainly helped the women who are trying to stay in the workforce. Certainly. Something else that you talk about is wage gap transparency. And admittedly, I knew a little bit about this, but you are the one that really have educated me about this shamefully. I mean, as a guy, I should know more about this. And I guess because I don't work in the corporate setting, I'm just in my own little bubble seeing patients. <laughs> but this is certainly important and important for the wellness of our country and the world world at large. So can you talk about that and how we can improve that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this to me, again, another essential move that the Biden platform actually, again, embraces uh, this move. And and we see this in other countries. So what, what we're talking about is a wage gap analysis done by companies that would look at the wage gap differential. They would look at, at gender, race, ethnicity, and see what is the differential. And then it would the onus would be on them to correct that differential. We saw this uh, in the UK. It is now the law in the UK for companies of a certain size uh, must report their gender wage gap. And you know, the first year that they reported it, a couple of years ago, you can probably guess how many companies paid women more than they paid men, which would be 
zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, th- you know, this is something that once sunlight really is the best disinfectant. In the United States, there are companies that are doing this voluntarily, including Salesforce. They're the ones who have done it most famously. They have paid over the last three years something like $9 million to close that gap because they, they found that you actually have to do this analysis every single year because you're hiring people who are coming from other companies. Or in the case of Salesforce, maybe you're acquiring another company where they also have a wage gap there. And so you need to do this on an annual basis. What Salesforce has found is that that $9 million is a drop in the bucket compared with what they are getting in return. And what they're getting in return is they're getting a better level of recruit. They're getting a better level of people who are staying in their jobs, less turnover. All of these things have a financial benefit. And by the way, having, as you and I have discussed this, having a mixed group, uh, a diverse group, particularly in your leadership, actually leads to better financial results. So it's all, it's like a win, win, win in Mm -hmm. every dimension that you look at this, uh, you come out on top if you have the diversity and you're paying people equitably. Absolutely. Like you said in in the article and throughout your work, this is not a women's issue or a men's issue. This is a people's issue because actually everybody, one of the the, the, uh, statistics that you cite, I think it's in the book, is the fact that GDP improves when all of these measures are done. Can you cite that that reference and, and what, what improves GDP when it comes to these things we're talking about? Sure, sure. So if women were to, if women, we have more women in the workforce and if women contributed equally and were equally represented in the workforce with men, it would raise global GDP by something like 5%. We're talking trillions of dollars simply for having more women participating in the workforce. And again, here right now in the United States, by losing so many women out of the workforce, we're actually hurting our economy. I mean, the best thing that we can do to supercharge our economy right now is to do what it takes to bring more women back into the workforce. Yes, well said. And uh, the last thing that we, you mentioned in the article that I think is is really interesting is something that I've heard through this past election cycle is this uh, idea of increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour and how that would help women actually be able to afford childcare. Yes, you see women who are disproportionately in these hourly wage jobs and particularly women of color. And again, this is something that If you're a working mother and you are working for minimum wage right now, it is very, very, very difficult to both hold that job and to pay someone else to care for your child. And so the $15 minimum wage, which is still relatively low, but it is more than double what you see in some states, um, Mm. would allow women to stay in that workforce. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to bring these women back. Um, The fact that we are losing millions of women should be put this country on red alert. This is something Mm -hmm. that is taking us back years. If you look at the uh, participation of women in the workforce right now, you have to go back more than 30 years to 1988 to see, I should say, uh, more than 20 years, to 1988 to, no, more than 30 years, sorry. Okay, that's a long time. Yes. If you want to look at the participation of women in the workforce right now, you have to go back more than 30 years to 1988 
to see levels that low. We have just wiped out three decades of progress in just nine months. It is absolutely essential. Literally, people should, you know, their hair should be on fire here about what is happening to women in the workplace right now and how important it is to the United States economy for all of us, not mm-hmm. just for women, for all of us to bring these women back. Yeah, I mean, it's astounding. Like you said, the last time we talked just a year or so ago, there was some really good gains and promise, but all of that was wiped. That's just, in a way, it shows how fragile things were, right? I mean, women were against all odds making gains, and then that was all ripped away with something like a pandemic. Absolutely. So you've got the pandemic. You know, there are there are cultural issues here as well. We have been as we know, in this incredibly polarized world, um, you know, we had three years ago, the Me Too movement arrived. And with it, there was a lot of emphasis on uh, bringing more women back, you know, giving women more positions of leadership. And that's terrific. But at the same time, that also led to the backlash against it. And we have seen that in some quarters very, very heavily. So, you know, it, it sometimes it feels like we're taking two steps forward and three steps backward. Mm-hmm. Uh, a statistic that you cited in the past, I remember you mentioning, and I think that that number has gone down as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it is female CEOs and how that number was still abysmally low. But was that also impacted uh, be- during the economic recession that's going on now? So the the number of female CEOs has been relatively steady at a very, very, very low percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have seen, and I and I, you and I, I think have spoken about this before, mm-hmm. is the fact that when women do get into positions of power, uh, they are scrutinized at a level that men are not. And so mm-hmm. as a result, you see that, for example, women who are CEOs are much more likely to be targeted by activist investors. They are much more likely uh, to lose a job and not be able to get a new job. Uh, There was a study done of uh, women who were in the Fortune Most Powerful Women group, and they found that when those women left or lost their top CEO job, only 13% of them were able to get a comparable job. Whereas with men, you see very often there's a safety net for them. They get Mm -hmm. kicked out of one job and they end up in another similarly high-placed job. Uh, Women don't have that, um, in part, they don't have the network, but in part, uh, there's been research that has shown that uh, when when a company, Rockefeller Foundation actually did this research, and they looked at press coverage of women in power, and they found that when a company is in trouble, if it has a female CEO, that press reports blame her personally. Whereas if it has a male CEO, he does not get the blame. There's other research in addition to that that shows that when a woman makes a mistake, it is remembered longer and has more severe consequences than when a man makes a mistake. That brings up a thought that I, I was having, I had this conversation probably more than the average person because I'm like, I'm fascinated by what you bring to life. I'm I'm like a Joanne Lippman uh, super fan. Uh, and this is stuff that I, in my health world and my functional medicine world, I just don't hear about very often because it's not my main clinical focus. But when I hear about this, I see the 
direct connections to health. When you talk about stress levels and anxiety and depression and isolation, all these things that are super important to health. But the concept of implicit bias, where the statistics you just mentioned, that's just ingrained in our culture. The statistics don't lie. I mean, this is just backed by so much solid data. But what do you say? Maybe, maybe you don't say anything, but what do you say to somebody that's like, well, there's no such thing as unconscious bias. Like, this is the same. Uh, everybody's treated the same. Right. It is extraordinary to me that we are now seeing a backlash against unconscious bias training. We've seen that mm -hmm. at uh, from the White House, say basically saying, oh, it just means you're bashing white men, uh, which is actually not the point at all. You know, what we see in unconscious bias is we all have it. I mean, in fact, if you look at the unconscious, there's an implicit bias test that you can actually take and you can give yourself. And millions of people have taken this test. And when the results have been correlated, they have found that women, for example, something like 80% of women have some unconscious bias against working women. Mm -hmm. um, blacks have a large percentage majority of blacks have some unconscious bias against blacks. And so it's something that is sort of built into all of us. It's a societal issue. Um, it's an outgroup issue that, you know, if we, when we look at others, so, so it's, it's incredibly important that the, the, the the problem that we're seeing now, I think, is that because there's been this backlash, it's been misrepresented what we're talking about with unconscious bias. So unconscious bias is we all have it, black, white, male, female. And it is these biases, they're, they're buried so deeply inside of us that we don't realize we have them. And when we don't realize we have them, they can impact our actions in ways that we don't even recognize. And, and some of the research on this has been extraordinary. It starts really from birth. It starts at home. This is not a workplace issue. This actually starts at home. Uh, there's been this research on mothers that finds that mothers of new infants routinely overestimate the crawling ability of their baby sons, but they underestimate the crawling ability of their baby daughters. Um, then two-year-olds, Google did this research where Parents who type into Google, is my child a genius, are more than twice as likely to ask that question about a boy two-year-old as a girl two-year-old. And then we see this at sort of every age group all the way up. I mean, um, school children, there was a study that was done in Israel. School children were given a math test. First, the test was graded anonymously uh, with no names on top. The girls outscored the boys. But when they put the names on top of those tests, the boys suddenly outscored the girls in math. So this was teachers who were sort of unconsciously giving the boys the benefit of the doubt. I traced this in, that's what she said, all the way up to college where a female student needs to have an A average to be seen as the equal of a male student with a B average. So by the time they even get into the workplace, this sort of unconscious bias is just built right into us. And there is... Uh, research that, that suggests that a woman in the working world needs to be two and a half times more competent than a man to be seen as his equal. So this is something, again, um, and you can repeat this research looking at different minority groups, looking at underrepresented groups, and you will see a very, very similar pattern. Mm -hmm. Something that you cite, and that's what she said your book, uh, which we'll talk more about in a little bit. But uh, one of the references on this topic of, un of unconscious bias is women in politics. 
specifically, and I think it was 2008 election cycle. Can you talk a little bit about about that and Hillary and what she was up against there? Sure. So Hillary Clinton faced sort of every kind of sexist trope you can imagine. You know, she was criticized for her appearance. She, uh, one of the things that I thought was actually quite interesting though, was, you know, Hillary has blonde hair. One of the pieces of research I found is that women in positions of power disproportionately have blonde hair, much greater than at levels of the population. Not always, they weren't always born with it. Um, (laughs) But the research suggests, not that they would have known the research, but intuitively they probably do. The research suggests that when women are very powerful, that the blonde hair helps them pass as sort of less intimidating and more youthful, which is very important for women. But what was interesting about, you know, that election with Hillary Clinton was that she was subject to things, you know, she couldn't be angry, she couldn't show emotion, all of the things, you know, Donald Trump was allowed to own his anger. Like that's mm-hmm. a that's one of his core emotions that he shows is anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, women can't do that. So I, I think um, I that one would have hoped that we would have gotten over that by now. But again, I started looking at uh, certainly during the primaries at how the press was treating the the various candidates. And again, we still saw this very, very gendered language mm-hmm. um, about people. One of one of the most stark examples was Amy Klobuchar, who when she was when uh, she was in the, a primary candidate, there was a front page story about you know how nasty she was. Uh, that's the kind of story you don't see written about a man who mm-hmm. is hard charging. So we're still struggling with how to cover women. This is a press issue, but it also reflects sort of the larger population, just the larger culture. Yeah, exactly. I said 2008. So 2008 was the primary uh, for Hillary, but 2016 in, in both primary and general. You're right. So another topic that I want to talk about with with you is based on a Wall Street Journal article that you wrote entitled Stressed Out Over the COVID-19 Pandemic, Some Companies Invent a Holiday. Uh, And you talk about the health statistics that are going on. Specifically, you cite this global survey published in Harvard Business Review in May of 2020. It said 67% of employees reported higher stress levels in the first months of the pandemic, and more than half say they were experiencing emotional exhaustion. And you also mentioned a CDC survey of more than 5,400 American adults in late June, almost a third reported symptoms of anxiety or depression. I'm definitely seeing this with my patient base for sure. Can you talk about what's being done specifically in some some companies? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think these these statistics, again, are something that we really have to pay attention to because we're seeing it now. It's increasing, and I'm sure you're seeing this in your own practice. We see this as increasing. That was workers in general. There are certain groups of workers, especially healthcare workers, for whom you know they're at a breaking point yeah. um, emotionally and in terms of stress. So I do think it's incumbent on companies to do something about it. There's another st- uh, another statistic out there that there's been a few uh, studies on this, and th- I've also heard this anecdotally from company leaders that they find that their workers are also working longer hours because they're at home, they don't have a commute, they don't have the break of a commute or having to travel by 
plane to go, you know, or a business lunch. There's no, none of these sort of built-in breaks Mm -hmm. um, that give you a little bit of emotional space. And then in addition to that, because people are on their computers, they tend to be working longer hours than they were before. And so it's really incumbent on companies and leadership to do something about this. And what I wrote about in the Wall Street Journal is something that I heard about from a few executives I know that are now giving companies mandatory holidays that are just totally invented company holidays. So, you know, they take a random Friday (laughs) and say, this is a company holiday, nobody's working. And one of the companies I spoke to, and it it is primarily tech companies, but one of the companies that I I spoke with said, you know, we initially, our first thought was we're going to give employees off on their birthday. Everybody gets a holiday on your birthday. And then they realized that that actually doesn't do anything because if you're off, but nobody else is off, everybody's still bombarding you with emails and then you just have to catch up when you're done. So they said, the only way to do this is to basically say, full stop, the whole company is off. We're just going to close up shop for a day. And that's something that that employees have been extremely grateful for. I think it's really important. I, I do think it's a single step that companies take. There's some others that I think are, are, you know, equally important. I mean, we're seeing some companies that are bringing in either um, very subsidized or even free um, healthcare assistance so that people can speak to people like you, Will, um, when they're having uh, difficulty. We've seen some companies, and I would like to see many, many more companies that are offering subsidized childcare and subsidized also tutoring for children to help them with homeschooling. Again, something I think is incredibly important. And I just saw in, uh, there's a company that in its New Zealand office, I believe it is, is trying a four-day work week. This I'm very, very, very intrigued by because they found that um, their employees were working longer every single day. And so they said, you know what, rather than have people stressed out and they're working longer anyway, let's give them, let's tell them to do it in four days and then just take Friday off every week. I would love to see companies experiment with that here in the United States. And I think with all this remote working, there's a potential to do that for certain kinds of companies. Certainly. That's so funny. I, my functional medicine center, that's what we've done for the past 12 years. We do four 10-hour days, but it's nice. The team loves it. They have Friday off and they may do random stuff from home, but really not. They really have that three-day weekend and it's good. It's good for people's mental health. It's good for them to get things done they can't do at work. Absolutely. And and I heard, you know, with these company holidays, I did talk to people who have taken them and it's not perfect. Um, several of them said that they used at least half of their day off to catch up on work, which is sort of counterproductive. Yeah, it's the purpose, right. <laughs> and, and also during COVID, you know, I, I spoke to a woman who she said, look, I really appreciate the effort, but I have two twins I've and, and, a, and a three-year-old and the, the twin infants were were born prematurely. They have all kinds of health issues. They've been in the hospital. My three-year-old can't go to daycare because of COVID. And, you know, she said, my dream day would be to clean my house and take a nap, but I haven't had that yet. You know, the, the stress, I do think that we're not fully aware, cognizant of this, the incredible stress that's put on working parents. And, and this is true for, for men as well. It, it, it is, it's just, it, it, 
undeniably has uh, been a much heavier burden for women. Certainly. I would want to pivot to your amazing book, which I think should be required reading in schools. It should be required reading. Like I told you this last time, but my son Solomon, he was 13 at the time. He's 14 now. He read it, loved it. And this is stuff that boys should read and women should read too. Like you said, implicit bias, unconscious bias goes to everybody. To start to be mindful of this, start to grow in awareness around this is certainly important. To start to undo some of that indoctrination that we get. Um, but anyways, you, one of my favorite chapters is all about Iceland and the best places to work if you're a woman. Can we go to Iceland for a moment and talk about the penis museum, talk about all that stuff and all the amazing things that's going on there? Absolutely. So, so Iceland, where I spent time when I was researching, that's what she said. And I went there because it is, if you look at the World Economic Forum rankings of the best places for gender equality, Iceland has been for years number one. What's interesting about Iceland is it became number one in 2008, the year of the financial crisis. And I was really curious about why that was. It had always been, you know, good, but suddenly it was number one. And here's what I found. So the financial crisis in 2008, we know it, it tanked the global economy. Here in the United States, as we also know, pretty much no one was held accountable for this. Nobody went to jail for this massive financial crisis. The CEOs kept their jobs at the investment banks. The investment banks, you know, got bailed out. But if you go to Iceland, it was very, very different. So in Iceland, actually, the, the economy had tanked even worse because they'd had a lot of, of speculative financial shenanigans going on there in an economy and a country that wasn't accustomed to these kinds of financial you know, kinds of wizardry. And they really, really, really were hurting. But what they did in Iceland was they, not only did they fire the heads of the three major banks, but they went to jail and the government was toppled and it was replaced uh, by a government led by women. And the women, they also had the university at Iceland there uh, do a deep dive into why the economy crashed. And they came out with literally an excess of testosterone that, that they were just, it was testosterone gone mad. <laughs> and they, they actually went on a, on a quest to, to feminize the entire country. So women took over. They have various government facilities now that are to look at, you know, gender wage gaps and gender divides, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the beauty of Iceland is this. So I went, I go spend time with Iceland. Here's the thing about Iceland. It is the most macho country in the world. You know, it's like the, the main jobs there are fishermen. They're fishermen, they're farmers. They're, it's, it's just a very, very sort of macho, supercharged male mm -hmm. culture in many, many ways. Yeah. But you would sit, sit down with these big macho guys and they would essentially like bang the table and say things like, of course, I am a feminist. <laughs> yeah. And what I realized is that there's no stigma in Iceland. The men consider themselves feminists. The men are just as invested in having gender equality as the women are. And the men are just as cognizant that they have a long way to go. And it, it's very, very interesting. And it's a, it's a great model 
for, mm-hmm. for a country that actually understands that this is a human issue. It's not a male-female issue. Yeah. You mentioned Iceland being number one. Where does the United States rank? I know that you talk about it in the book, but. Oh, so um, I can't recall where it was in the book, but it has declined yeah. in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely. We are nowhere near the best for sure. But you can read it in the book to see the exact statistics there. All right. So let's talk about some practical action steps that men and women, anybody can do to start improving workplace, start working better together. Mm -hmm. Number one that you talk about in the book is interrupt the interrupters, which I love. And this happens all across the board, even up to the Supreme Court. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And this is such a simple intervention. And by the way, there are so many of these interventions that are very straightforward. Once we're aware of them and we put them into action, they actually do move the needle. So interrupt the interrupters. Women, research has consistently shown women are interrupted three times more frequently than men are. And even in the Supreme Court, Northwestern studied the Supreme Court of the United States and found that the female Supreme Court justices are interrupted three times more frequently than male Supreme Court justices. So this doesn't matter how far you go up the ladder. It's it, it's it's a fact of life. The interrupt the interrupters is, I do feel that anyone in a meeting should feel empowered to say, you know, hey, Susan was speaking. I would love to hear her finish. Uh, and I, I, I think leadership needs to be attuned to this so that they can make sure that when Susan or Brandy or whoever it is is cut off, that they can make sure that she has a chance to, to finish her sentence. There is a, 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 um, a very, very successful screenwriter, Glenn Mazzara. He did The Shield. I think he did The Walking Dead. Yeah, and Walking he, Dead. he actually told me the story of how his writer's room, usually got like a dozen people or so who sit around a table and, and hash out storylines when you're, when you're doing a show, a TV show. And he said, you know, first the, the writer's room was all male and he wanted to have a more diverse writer's room. He went to agents. He said, I need some female writing teams. He said the agents just thought he was, it was both BS. He, the agents thought he was only asking them to be politically correct, not because he actually wanted women. So he finally gets some women in the room and he sees they're failing. They're not getting any of their ideas out and he can't not figure out why are they failing. And he said it took him too long to realize, but finally his ear picked up on the fact that every time they opened their mouths, they got shot down and cut off by their male colleagues. So he created a new rule in his writer's room that whoever's pitching an idea must be allowed to finish uninterrupted, right? Sounds pretty simple. Mm -hmm. But uh, he said it changed everything in that writer's room that suddenly these women's ideas were being heard and being incorporated, suddenly that not only are they not failing, but his shows are getting better because you now have more diverse voices in the room. And I think that's a lesson for, you know, any corporate meeting that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, any meeting as I've ever been in, I now treat meetings differently. I hear things differently. And, um, and I try to be that person who interrupts to allow women to speak. Yeah, it's good stuff. And the next tip that you talk about in the book is using amplification and brag buddies. Shed some light on that. Sure. These are my other favorite strategies. So amplification is the idea. And and by the way, this was first popularized uh, during the Obama administration. So he had more women than any previous or subsequent administration. 
but the women still felt like they were bulldozed by the men in the room. And so they came up with this concept where if one woman said something, a second woman would jump in and amplify her remark as in, oh, you know, I think Susan's idea to do such and such is really terrific. And what that did is uh, it made sure that the women's remarks were heard, that they didn't die. And it also made sure, this is very important, that a man didn't get credit for her ideas. This, this is something else that research has shown happens again and again, which is that a woman or someone from another underrepresented group has an idea, says something, it's crickets. It's like nobody seemed to hear it. And then two minutes later, a guy repeats exactly what she just said, and he gets the credit. And I've actually seen this even on television where they have like a panel with men and women on the panel mm -hmm. and a male moderator. And I've actually seen this where a woman says something and two minutes later, the moderator says, well, as Bill was saying, right? Like yeah. it still happens. So right. anyway, you have to really listen for it. That's amplification. And Brag Buddies is, again, something similar. I love this. Brag Buddies uh, stems from the fact that women are penalized when they talk about their own achievements. Men are rewarded for talking about their achievements. And so um, there was women at a consulting firm who came up with this Brag Buddies idea, which is they very consciously decided amongst themselves that um, they would trade accomplishments. In other words, I would tell Rebecca my accomplishments and she would tell me hers. And then we would both go to the boss and brag about the other one, which was much more effective. The one thing I would like to say about this, because this was among women, a man can be your brag buddy. Uh, a man can be the person who interrupts the interrupters, right? It, you, it, the, the real key here is to have allies in the room. And this doesn't happen by accident. These are very intentional moves that we're talking about. They're not hard, but they're intentional. And they don't have to be just women helping women. This is really where men can step in. Absolutely. That's a great point. Thanks for highlighting it. I mean, that's what you say throughout the book. And I want people to that haven't read the book yet to A, read it, but B, is this what we're talking about? This is about, as you always say, women talking about this stuff amongst themselves is just half of the conversation. It's half of the solution. We as men need to be a part of this to truly solve it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So on the plus side, I have seen more men who are stepping up, who are trying to close the gap. Um, I think the incoming administration, which is attempting to have a more diverse cabinet that is more reflective of society, is a is a positive step. But again, you know, we're like I said, sometimes it's three two steps forward, three backwards. We it's something that you really have to pay attention to because going back to the unconscious bias that we were talking about, if you don't actually consciously pay attention to this, we will end up backsliding. Very true. My friend, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. And my for everybody else, there's so many practical tips. This is not just the research, which is very fascinating research in and of itself, but she, Joanne's teaching us how to do this on a daily basis with the people around us. So before we go, is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about or maybe some parting messages to the people? Well, Will, I would actually like to give a shout out to you because I think the fact that you are highlighting these issues is so important. You've been a really key ally to women. And uh, I do think that, that it, it makes a difference. It really, really makes a difference. You know, as you just said, like women talking to each other, it's a, it feels good. It's a great conversation, 
but it's half a conversation. And at the end of the day, for us to really make progress as a society, we all need to understand that we are all in this together, men, women, uh, people of all races and ethnicities, if we can lift each other up. And it's steps like the one that you're taking that are going to allow us to do that. So thank you. Thank you. Amen. I love Joanne Lippman. She is brilliant to say the least. If you want to learn more about Joanne Lippman's work, you can go to joannelippman.com. That's J-O-A-N-N-E-L-I-P-M-A-N.com. And please check out her epic book that is required reading, if you ask me. I made both of my kids read it because it's that good. But you can check it out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere that you get books. That's what she said, what men and women need to know about working together. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. Now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Taylor. Taylor asks, Dr. Cole, I've heard you talk a lot about autoimmune reactivity. Is that the same as autoimmune disease? What's the difference? Great question, Taylor. Let's talk about it. Autoimmune reactivity is a phrase that I write a lot about in my books and in articles on online because it is one aspect of a larger autoimmune inflammation spectrum. On one end of the autoimmune spectrum, you have silent autoimmunity or silent inflammation, if you will. And that is, if you ran labs, you'd see positive autoimmune markers, antibodies, for example, or positive inflammatory markers. But the person's asymptomatic, they feel fine. The next stage on the inflammation spectrum, specifically autoimmune inflammation spectrum, is autoimmune reactivity, which is what your question was referring to, Taylor. Uh, So this is someone that's symptomatic, they don't feel well, they know intuitively that something's not right, but they're not going to fit all of mainstream medicine's criteria to be labeled with a full-blown autoimmune disease, which is stage three on the autoimmune inflammation spectrum, which is that things are bad enough for mainstream medicine to give a diagnosis code. So research estimates that it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis. When someone's diagnosed, it's four to 10 years prior to that time when things were brewing on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum, meaning it didn't happen overnight. So to be more pointed here, there has to be about 70 to 90% destruction of certain parts of the body before it's bad enough for mainstream medicine to say, okay, this is what it is. So similar, like for MS, it's the destruction of the myelin sheath. You have to have significant destruction of the myelin sheath before it shows up on an imaging study and they say, this is MS or looks like MS, uh, which is a neurological autoimmune issue. Or there has to be close to 90% destruction of the adrenal glands before mainstream medicine will say, this is Addison's disease, that uh, this is an autoimmune adrenal disease. 90% destruction of the adrenal glands in that example. Similar numbers for the villi in the gut when it comes to celiac disease or different uh, inflammatory components in the gut for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. 
It's about four to 10 years prior to that. So the question is, what can we do today, no matter where you're at on the autoimmune inflammation spectrum, to take control of your health, to mitigate risk factors as much as your body can and start having agency over your health and start moving the needle in a positive direction. And that's what I'm really deep diving with patients on an hourly basis at my telehealth center. And what I want for everybody, whether they're my patients or not, I want people, that's why I write the books that I write and, and I'm having this podcast to empower people, to inform them, to give them a lifeline in many cases to, to educate them and to give them tools to have agency over their health. So it's truly an honor. And that's what I'm talking about. Autoimmune reactivity are people that are symptomatic. They have autoimmune components to their case, but they're not bad enough for mainstream medicine to say unanimously, definitively, this is an autoimmune disease. And that's not to say that everybody in that stage two on that inflammation spectrum, that autoimmune reactivity stage, not everybody in that category are going to ever get bad enough for mainstream medicine to officially label it with a diagnosis code. There are millions upon millions of people that stay in that stage two autoimmune reactivity for their whole life. And they're labeled with things like fibromyalgia, they're labeled with things like chronic fatigue syndrome, they're labeled just as it looks autoimmune. Um, there's no clear answer. They have a family history of autoimmunity. They have positive labs. They have symptoms for sure, but they're really given nothing other than palliative care. Maybe they're given some pain medication, maybe some steroids, maybe some antidepressants, but they're really um, not given any clear sustainable choice or even answers on what's going on in their health. So that's definitely something that I talk about extensively. That's a lot of my patient base to, to start giving them tools where they're at now. Let's not wait till things get bad enough to be officially labeled, even though those people need help as well. But wherever you're at, what can you do today to start having agency over your health? There you go. That's the answer to your question, Taylor. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Thanks again for hanging out with me. I would love to know what you think about the art of being well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday. And I hope you will too. Talk soon.